All righty. My clicker's not working. There we go. I remember when I first saw this quote and read it, written by an author, uh, Elizabeth Stone. To have a child is to have forever your heart go walking around outside your body. If you're a parent, you know how true that is, uh, don't you? And how much we care about our kids and how much our lives are wrapped up in our kids and we want them to do well and when they do well, our hearts swell with joy and with pride and, and uh, when they have accomplishments, we're there to, to cheer them on and we revel in the joys they experience. And for all of us, you know, one of the greatest things is Christmas and to see our kids, just their eyes light up with, with all the fun that comes with that uh, season. And yet we also know the hurts in the heart uh, hardness that comes as we grieve over their disappointments sometimes, or we grieve over their, their losses or their failures or, or their struggles. And as we're honest, we worry about our kids constantly. And you know what I've discovered is I've gotten older, is you don't stop. I kind of had this thing like when my parents, or not when my parents, when my kids were out of the house and gone, I would be like, oh, good. Okay, I don't have to worry about them anymore, but I do and uh, still continue to worry about them, and the angst just doesn't go away. I just realized that I have less of a voice than I used to in their lives. They're not under my roof anymore, and so it's just hard, isn't it? Um, not hard all the time, because there are joys that are certainly part of the, the process, but there's also this element where we feel what our kids feel, and we feel it on a different level. And maybe it's when your kids are struggling in school, and we, we, we struggle too, and we hurt for them, or, or when they try out for a sports team and they don't make it, or maybe they do make the team, but they just sit on the bench and they never get to play. And we know how much it's hurting them, and it hurts us as well. We hurt when they don't get asked to the prom, or we hurt when they struggle with friendships. I remember one of my children had a... Uh, situation where she went to school one day and her best friend wasn't talking to her and her best friend never spoke to her for the next year solid with no explanation nothing just stopped talking to her and she went to the same school and went to the same church and I remember going through that with her and what a hard hard year that was sometimes we we hurt with our kids when they choose the wrong friends or they make bad choices and when they fail, we want to rescue them so badly, and sometimes we foolishly jump in and rescue them when we shouldn't because we care about them, and that's really what it is that drives us. And we care when things don't go well for them, even as adults or in their marriages or with their families. And there's all these different reasons that it just hits us at a heart level with our kids. And sometimes we struggle when we don't see them do well with, with faith or whatever it is. But I think one of the things, excuse me, just a second. One of the things that we struggle with with our kids sometimes is, is when they're sick. And especially when they're little, you watch a little one when he, when he or she is sick and it's like, oh, I want to make this better for you. And you, you just can't fix it for them. And, and they're having a hard time and, and you're struggling with them. I remember when Allie was six years old. Her birthday was actually on a Monday. We had done a little bit for her on the weekend with her birthday. But on Monday, she went off to school and uh, went through the school day. And the school where she went to was connected to the church where I worked. And they were just on two different buildings, but on the same piece of property. 
And after school that day, she came over to my office and was like, Dad, I don't feel very good. And I looked at her and she didn't look very good either. So I packed her up and I took her home and, and we took her temperature and it was 105, which is pretty extreme for, for a, a kid there. And so we called the doctor and by then it was pretty late in the day. And so like, hey, this kid's got a 105 fever. And the doctor's response was, you know what? There's a lot of stuff going on right now. It's December. It's kind of the season. Give her some Tylenol. Get the fever down. She'll be just fine. And you, don't, you don't really need to worry about it. She should be good. And so we did that, and we gave her some Tylenol, and she threw it up, and we waited later on, and we gave her a little more Tylenol, and she threw it up. And that was just the course of the evening. Like every 40 minutes, she was throwing up. And we finally got to, like, this kid is sick. And uh, we need to do something. So we threw her in the car and we took her to the emergency room and got her to the emergency room. And they actually did blood work on her. And they came back, I don't know, 45 minutes later and said, we got to get this girl in the hospital here. And her white um, blood cell count was like at 35,000, which normally should be between like 4 and 11, something like that. It was at, at uh, 35,000 and at 40,000, it could be fatal. And they're like, we got to get this kid in here. And they, they threw an IV in, and she spent the next three days in the hospital. And that was how she spent her six-year-old uh, six uh, six birthday. And still remember that. Um, she lived. You, you all knew that, right? And uh, she ended up being just fine. I knew she was really sick, though, when she was in the hospital because there, uh, we didn't have cable or anything like that in our house. And there were like four different kids' channels that you could watch on TV from your hospital bed. And she didn't care. And she's like, just turn that off. And I remember how much I felt that, though. She was so, so sick. And you're just looking at just kind of this limp body, just lying there on the hospital bed. But if you're a parent this morning and you're feeling maybe it's joy, I get that. And maybe you're feeling some angst this morning. I get that, too, because as parents, this, this is so true, isn't it? That heart, it just goes walking around outside of us, inside of that kid. And if you're here this morning and you're not a parent, maybe you will be someday, and, and you're going to understand that just as much as well. And maybe this morning you're here as a grandparent, and you've been even amazed that that, that same feeling transfers on and, and, and passes on, not just to your kids, but to your grandkids. But this morning we want to look at a story about a person who was in a desperate situation because of something that was going on with his child. And he was desperate enough to walk 20 miles to get help. And he was desperate enough to approach a complete stranger and say, hey, I need you to help me because nobody else can. And he was desperate enough that when that stranger said, no, I don't think so, that he just kept pushing and said, no, you're my only hope here. He was that desperate because he had no choice. Because he was a father, and that's what fathers do. We stand in and we stand up, and the same with mothers too, and we push for our kids. And so the story shows up in John chapter 4 this morning. We're going to start reading in verse number 43 in just a minute. It's a story of a father whose son is desperately sick. And just so you know, this is a story that has a happy ending, just like Allie's story had a happy ending. But I point out the fact that it has a happy ending because that's the hope that I want to share this morning. Whatever the story is with your kids, whatever the story is with your family, whatever your story is with your grandkids, the outcome can be good. The outcome can be good. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, oh, for my situation to work out, that would take a miracle. Well, I've got good news this morning. 
Because our story is about a miracle. And our story is about a miracle worker. And while I can't promise that he will do a miracle for you, I can promise you this. First of all, he knows exactly what's going on in your situation. I can promise you that he can do something about it. I can promise you that he's actually close enough to help. And I can promise you this morning that he loves your kids more than you love your kids. And he loves your grandkids more than you love those grandkids. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. And the story that we're looking at is in the book of John. And just to catch us up, we started this series last week on the seven wonders, seven miracles that John actually calls signs that he records in his book. And he just chooses seven out of 35 miracles that Jesus did. But his point is not so much the miracle. The point is to look at what the miracle actually teaches. And he calls them signs because these miracles, as we look at them, tell us something about Jesus. And John says, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice this about Jesus. And I want you to believe as a result. So take a look at this, at this miracle is what he's saying because it's going to say Jesus is something special. Jesus is actually God. And you can put your faith and you can put your trust and you can put your belief in him. Last week we looked at the first sign, which actually happened to be the first miracle. And that was when Jesus turned the water to wine at Cana. And the lesson from that, the, the point that's made is that we have a God who is about transformation. God could take a story that's going one direction and he can turn around and, and head it off in an entirely different direction. Well, this week we look at the second sign or the second wonder, but it's not the second miracle, not even the second miracle that's mentioned here in the book of John. It says this in John 2.23, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed on his name. So this is John chapter 2. That's where we were last week, but it's after the water to wine episode. So Jesus was in Cana, which was up in Galilee, which was north in Israel there. And he went south down to Jerusalem, to Judea, for the feast week. And while he was there, he was doing miracles. We don't necessarily know what these were. We assume that healing must have been some of these miracles. But this is John chapter 2. We're now in John chapter 4. As we look at this story today, Jesus has been down at the feast, and he's heading back to Galilee, which is where he grew up, so it's really home territory for him. And so he heads back in that direction. And so the story that we look at today in John chapter 4, we're going to read verse 43, but let me just go back and read the first three verses in the book, uh, or in the chapter 4 there. It says this, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. And so Jesus had left Cana, originally had gone down to the feast there in Jerusalem, and he had started to teach, and he had probably gathered more uh, disciples at that, at that time. And he was gathering a following, and there was baptisms going on, and he was doing these miracles, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees specifically at that time, were like, oh, we've got some competition here. And they weren't real excited about that, and so there was, there was some bad blood that was developing, not necessarily Jesus towards these Pharisees, but these Pharisees towards Jesus. And to defuse the situation, Jesus heads back to Galilee. 
is actually a fulfillment of prophecy as well, that, that most of his ministry would be there in, in Galilee. And so he heads back to Galilee, but in John chapter 4, instead of skirting around Samaria, which separated Judea for, from Galilee, and most of the Jews, because they didn't like the Samaritan, would kind of walk around the outside. Jesus chose to walk right through it, and he stopped there at a well. And he met a Samaritan woman, and he started just blowing up a lot of the social structures of that day. And he sat down, and he talked to this Samaritan, and, and, and he talked to this woman, and he talked to this broken person and all these taboos. He was just kind of blowing out of the water here. And it says, and he spent some time there in that situation. And then in verse number 43, it tells us that after two days in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his country. There's lots of discussion about that verse right there, number 44. It's not too hard to understand what it means, but what's hard to understand is why it's put right there in the story. And there's not a lot of consensus. If you read and study, there's a lot of different opinions out there. But if you'll notice, it's in parentheses, which means it's not crucial to the story. So we're just going to keep right on reading here. Verse number 45, when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. And this was uh, Jewish tradition. They would, they would uh, travel down to these feasts. And so they're pretty pumped. Like, hey, check this out. You know, this Jesus that we saw down there in Jerusalem doing some of these miracles, man, he's in our hometown now. And so there was a pretty big and good reception that was going on there. And it says this, um, verse number 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, calls him a royal official. We don't exactly know what his role was. We think he was probably part of of Herod's um, political uh, party or whatever word you want to choose there. Probably not Roman, probably not part of the Roman government. Herod was a Jewish ruler that the Romans had put in place there. And so he was probably part, part of, uh, of his, um, his party or whatever you want, want to call it there. But the thing to note here is the fact that Cana, where Jesus was, and Capernaum, where this guy worked, were 20 miles apart. Verse number 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and to heal his son, who was close to death. And so we have a desperate father who walks 20 miles to get to Jesus, who doesn't even take his son with him, probably too sick to travel. And so he comes to Jesus and he begs him, you've got to come with me. You have to come back these 20 miles back to Capernaum because my son is sick and he's not going to make it unless something incredible happens. And you're my last hope. It's what's going on here. And he's making this huge request. And Jesus responds in this way in verse number 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. And it seems kind of callous as Jesus seems to be saying, you know what, everybody's just following me right now because they do all these miracles. And, and, and people are making requests like this, requests like here, because you just want to see me do all these big things. And it seems kind of callous, it seems kind of hard. But I think Jesus is trying to make a point here, is like, I'm more than just the miracles. I'm more than just the miracles. 
And so maybe it seems like a rebuke, but Jesus is really after belief. And the royal official responds to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And he's not deterred at all by what Jesus says. He's, in fact, he implores more and says, hey, I, I need you to come down. My, my, my son's not going to make it. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. And I'm sure that's not what that guy was expecting. I, I, I think he was probably hopeful that Jesus was like, okay, tell me where, let's go. I'm ready, I'm on it. And Jesus says, go, your son will be fine. And this guy's faced with this huge choice, what do you do next? And Jesus would kind of put him into a corner, hadn't he? Like you could uh, say like, no, 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 no. Jesus, you have to come with me. And then Jesus would say, well, you don't have much faith, do you? Or you could just assume that Jesus was going to do something. And so the response of this man is incredible. He says this, the man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus has said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed, and that's a key phrase in this story. And then it tells us this in verse number 54. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So not the second miracle, but John picks it as the second sign and says, hey, there's a big point to be learned in this story. And so as we dive into it this morning, it's like, okay, what is the point? And you could be asking yourself that as we go, and we'll kind of come to this at the end, what the point is about the story. But I want to start with some observations about the story. But what I really want to go to this morning is this place where if you are struggling with a, with a situation with a child or with a family member or with a grandchild, I want us to look at this story and realize how much hope there is for whatever this situation is that you are dealing with. So we're going to learn about Jesus, but we're going to learn something from this story that hopefully can be super, super encouraging to us. So let me just point out a few things before we, before we kind of get into your notes there. But the first thing is this, what Jesus knew in this story. What Jesus knew in this story. First of all, he knew who this guy was. Now, he never gets a name, but Jesus knew him enough to know where he lived, evidently. And he knew who his son was and where his son was and what his son was sick with and what it would take to heal his son. Jesus knew a lot about this guy. And this guy, I'm assuming, went to Jesus believing that he was a complete stranger to Jesus and Jesus, without ever saying it, actually is like, I know all about you. <laughs> I know all about your situation. I know who you're talking about. I know that son of yours. And Jesus knew that much. And that's an encouragement to us this morning, that he knows all about our situation. The man didn't have to show up and say, well, here's the story, Jesus. I've got this son, his name is, and pick the name. And he's got this... And, he didn't need to do all that because Jesus already knew. And whatever your situation is that you're dealing with this morning, he knows. 
He knows all about it. He knows the names. He knows the issues. He knows the places. He knows the needs of the story. And Jesus knew the needs of this family, and the needs of this family, first of all, were that the son be healed. But he also knew the needs of the family, were secondly, that faith and belief would come. But Jesus knew all that, and Jesus knows all that this morning. In your story and in your situation. Secondly, we know how Jesus healed them. Jesus didn't leave Canaan. He didn't go with this guy. I'm sure he disappointed this guy. Instead, he just spoke the words. And as we learn later in the story, when he spoke the words, at that moment, that son recovered. And when Jesus said that your son will live, if you, in the original language, it, it wasn't like, well, he's going to get better. Your son will live. It was a decree of saying, he's well. And at that moment, Jesus healed him. But notice that it wasn't that Jesus needed to touch him. It was just that Jesus needed to speak the word. And that's how powerful the word of Jesus is. And the next thing we notice there is who actually knew what happened in this story. So Jesus did this huge healing, and all the people that would have been around Jesus at that time had no idea. This guy had a conversation with my son, and Jesus was like, oh, go, it'll be fine. And maybe everybody wondered, well, what happened? So who knew? Well, the man knew, and Jesus knew, and, and the boy obviously knew, and, and the disciples eventually knew, and John found out. I, we don't know when. But the point wasn't that Jesus could do this for himself so that everybody would say, oh, wow, you're awesome, even though John pulls this out later on. But it was because Jesus cared about this man and his son in a very private way. He dealt with them as people. I think he felt the pain that was in the situation. Says, I can do something here. It's not about me getting glory, and he did get glory, and that's fine. But it was about him meeting a need there. And so what actually happened? Well, the son was healed, but the family became believers. And why did they become believers? I think this is really important. Anytime we look at a miracle, and, and I included a quote in our, in our Waking Up Wednesday that went out right at the very bottom, but every miracle is an act of grace. There's not a single person in the gospel who comes to Jesus and who experiences a miracle where Jesus says, okay, I'm going to do this for you because you've earned it. I'm going to do this to you because you are a really good guy. I'm going to do this to you for you because you deserve this. No, every single miracle of Jesus is because Jesus is a good God who cares compassionately about us and looks at us in our need and says, yeah, I can do that. I will help you. And so this morning, if you're coming and you've got this situation, and maybe it's with your kids, with your family, whatever, you're like, I don't know. because you know, It's probably not what we deserve. Or maybe we've kind of made this mess ourselves or whatever. It doesn't matter. Jesus does miracles because of grace, because of who he is, and not because of who we are. And of course, belief is the greatest miracle of grace, isn't it? When Jesus comes to us and says, hey, I am God's son. I came to this earth to die for your sins, to go to a cross so that you could be forgiven. And he rose again with the promise of, of, of new life and a resurrection for us someday. That we'll live for, with, forever with God in heaven. And that's the greatest act of grace ever. And it's the greatest miracle ever. 
And we've talked about that this morning already, of freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom from sin and the power of sin and the penalty of sin. That's an act of grace. And that's all about Jesus. But this morning, let me just turn the corner here a little bit and, and look a little bit more at the Father in this story because that's where we are. We're the parent, or we're the grandparent, or we're the person who has this huge need. And let's look at faith and what kind of faith we need in our lives. The first thing is this. Faith is following Jesus for who he is and not for what he does. Now, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he does a lot of things for you. First of all, he promises you forgiveness. He, he promises us eternal life. And he does a lot of things for us, even in, in the course of our faith. And he meets our needs, and he answers prayer, and he does all these things. But that's not the driving reason for putting faith in Jesus Christ. Not for what he'll do for us, but the reason to put faith in Jesus Christ is because of who he is. And because of who he is, he's God, the God who created the world, who's spoken into existence, and he says what? I just want to have a relationship with you. And faith is realizing that it's about the relationship, not about all these fringe benefits that we actually get. And sometimes we get into the, you know, I want my faith to be all about the extraordinary. And, and even Sundays can be that way. Sometimes we can get caught up in the worship or we can get caught up in the word and, and we can kind of go out of church on a high and that's great. But faith is about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because Jesus is still Jesus every day of the week. And what's interesting to me in this miracle is that there's nothing incredible. If, you, if the first time Jesus went to Canaan, he turned water to wine. That's pretty awesome. You're like, you know, you're dipping this water out, and it's like, whoa, what just happened? But here, there's nothing incredible other than Jesus said, go, he's going to live. So faith is about following Jesus for who he is, not for what he does. Secondly, Faith is about hanging in and holding on in spite of resistance. And I put resistance in quotes there because that's not exactly what was going on. But this man had to feel like Jesus was pushing back. Like, I just made this 20-mile trek here, and, and now you're telling me no? Well, Jesus wasn't telling him no. Jesus was just making a point here that it needs to be about more than just the miracles, right? Jesus was not testing him to see how much faith he had. It wasn't like, well, let's see how much faith this guy's got. Jesus knew how much faith this man had. This man had enough faith to make this long walk to visit a stranger in hopes that that's a lot of faith right there. And sometimes we come to Jesus and we're like, I don't think I have enough faith. And sometimes we feel like Jesus pushes back on us because we don't have enough faith. No, no, no. Jesus pushes back sometimes because he wants to grow that faith even further. And faith grows a lot of times in the waiting. And faith grows in that resistance. And faith grows sometimes when Jesus doesn't respond the way that we want him to respond in the moment that we want him to respond. It's not that he doesn't know, and it's not that he's not going to. It's that there's some things that you need to learn, and there's some ways that your faith needs to grow. And if every time we came to Jesus, we made this request, and he said, okay, I'll do that for you. Okay, I'll do that for you. Our faith would be about that deep the whole way. It would just be about, well, I just got to go to Jesus so he can solve my problem. And Jesus, I, I want your faith to be so much deeper than that. I want it to be about our relationship, you and me, not about what I can do for you, 
not about all, you know, all the things out here. It's so sometimes Jesus doesn't do what we want or when we want because he knows what is best for us. And I say that this morning, if you're sitting like, I've been praying about this and, and I've been begging God for this and I've been asking for this and, and you're discouraged or you're disappointed or maybe you're even dealing with doubt, like, well, what's going on here? Faith is persisting even in the moment because that's what Jesus is doing in your story, but that's what Jesus is doing in your heart. And he's building a deeper faith in you and he wants you to go deeper with him well the third thing here and this is probably the key phrase that comes out of this story but it's this it's faith is simply taking jesus at his word you ever said to your kids you know when they're young and they'd ask you make a decision and they'd ask you a question well why why do i have to do this or why can't i do this and you would revert to that classic parent line, which was what? Because I said so. And what did you mean when you said that? You meant because I'm the parent and you're the kid. I have the authority in this situation and you don't. Nice try. What Jesus is saying in this moment is I have the authority. I have the authority. All I have to do is say so. And that's it. And whatever that situation that, that's eating at you and that's bothering you and, and that's, that, that's worrying you, all you need is for Jesus to say, okay, and to speak the word, and it will be done. Pretty incredible, isn't it? But when we talk about taking Jesus' word, I think there's two things that we really need to remember practically. The first one is this, we need to trust Jesus. So anything that we've looked in, in the word of God and Jesus has said this, we can bank on that. And so we just need to say, you know, you, you said this in so different situations in our lives. Like, man, I don't know about this, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm like, it's not really playing out the way that it says here. In this story, from this story, we can learn, hey, yeah, you can bank on it. It's, it's going to be the way that Jesus said. And so that we can put trust then in Jesus' word. If it's promised, it's a guarantee. You don't have to worry about it. It's going to play out that way. You can trust Jesus at his word. But then the second part of that is obedience. If I trust somebody enough in what he says, then I'm going to respond by doing what I need to do. And when Jesus said to this man, go, what did the man do? Okay, I'm away. And there are times in our stories where we're asking Jesus to do things when Jesus might be waiting for us to do things as well. To say, hey, I've got enough faith that I'm going to ask, on, or I'm going to act on what I'm asking here. Faith is simply taking Jesus at his word. Fourthly, faith is realizing that Jesus doesn't have to be here to be present. He doesn't have to be here to be here. Okay, this, is, this one's big to me. In this story, Jesus was in Cana, the boys 20 miles away in Capernaum, and yet Jesus was present in that place at that moment. 
And there are times I feel like, you know, Jesus, well, he walked on earth, but he's not really here. He's up in heaven, and he's far removed from us. And yeah, I know that he, he listens to us when we pray, but, but I'm here, and he's way up there. No, he's here with us. And Jesus doesn't have to be present to be present. And there's nothing stopping Jesus in that story from being in Cana and Capernaum, in a sense, at the same time. And there's nothing in our stories stopping him from being in heaven and being involved in the situation that we're facing at the same time. He doesn't have to be here to be here. And that's pretty exciting, isn't it? Because when we pray and we ask Jesus to do something, Jesus can be in the middle of our situation. And he could be in our home and he could be in our families because he, well, he knows where we live. He knows your address. He, he knows the kids that live in your house or the kids that used to live in your house that maybe have gone to other places. And he knows where they live. And he knows their names and he knows their troubles and he knows their needs and he knows all of this. And he doesn't have to be there to be there. And this, I think, is really the great lesson of the morning. This is the truth, I think, that John's trying to point out here is that Jesus is present even when it feels like he's not present. In this space thing, you know, having to be one place at one time, that doesn't count when it comes to Jesus. And he's never removed from us. He's absolutely more present than we think. And then finally this morning, faith is this. Faith is believing that Jesus cares about our kids and our families. I think we need to remind ourselves of this sometimes. That as much as you love your kids or your grandkids or, or your family, as much as you love them, it's pretty intense, isn't it? You don't love them near as much as Jesus does. As much as I love my kids, I don't love them as much as Jesus. And this morning when, when you're hurting or when you're worried or when you're praying or when you're concerned and when you're feeling that way and it's maybe overcoming to you, you can remind yourself of the fact that Jesus cares every bit as much as you do. And when I look at this story and I ask myself, why was it that Jesus healed this boy? Well, I think part of it was Okay, because he was God, and that was a way to show that he was God so people would believe, and that's, John picked up on that. But part of it was because he had a father there who was not physically dying, but I'm sure emotionally dying in that moment. And then there was this boy who I don't know what was going on. It was horrible. And Jesus in that moment says, I don't want it that either. And he steps into the story. Now I realize this, and we all have to realize this, that we all come with wills. And, and, and God, Jesus, never imposes himself on us. He sometimes, I think, throws grace at us in incredible ways, and we still have to make the decision to respond or not respond. And that's true for our kids, and that's true for our grandkids and for family members. It's, it's ultimately up to them in that Jesus won't force them. And yet at the same time, <clears throat> Jesus can come into our stories with such amazing grace and with such amazing power 
and such amazing ability to transform things that we've got to be encouraged about those things. I've been reading a book this week, a fascinating book I picked up in the library. It's called Thirst. It's the story of, of uh, Charity Water. Are you familiar with Charity Water? Um, they've, I, think, I think they have brought clean water in the last 15 years to like 330 million people worldwide. And it's not a Christian organization, but the guy who, who actually runs it is a Christian. But he grew up in a Christian home, went actually to a Christian school, very conservative Christian, whatever like that, and he, and he went off to New York City and he joined the party scene and he became a party promoter and, and, a, and a druggie and, and everything else. And just his life was, was an absolute disaster. But he had two parents at home who just never gave up. They just kept praying and praying and praying. And he finally came to the end of his rope one day and says, what am I doing? This is nuts. Why am I living like this? And he went and, and did a stint on the Mercy Ship. You're familiar with that? That goes around from port to port and, and, and uh, does like surgery uh, um, and, and works with people with these medical needs in these third world countries. And he did a stint on that ship and he came off of that and like, and his life was totally changed. And he gave his life back to Christ and said, how can I make a difference in my life by giving my life away to other people instead of constantly living for myself? And I read that book this, this week and as I was preparing this message, I thought, there's a great example, isn't it? Because I'm sure there was two parents there who completely given up hope. Maybe, except for the fact they just kept praying and praying and praying. And he talks about in his story where he was facing some needs and he'd call his parents and he'd say, hey, I need you to pray for this. He said, because... Nobody can get prayers answered like in his parents and me were Chuck and, and Joan. But I say that as an encouragement this morning because I think the most important thing that we can do as parents, and this never changes whether they're in our house or out of our house, is we can take our kids to Jesus. And this man took his child to Jesus. He didn't take them there physically, but he took his story to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you to do something incredible here for me hear from my child. So I want to encourage us with that this week as a church, and that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering this week, how much can we pray for our kids and for our grandkids? Now, you may have noticed on your way in, there is a card beside the bulletins there that said seven ways that you can pray for your kids. If you didn't pick one up, there are these little tables in the back there. You can pick one of these up on the way out. And here's what I'm wondering. Just like we were wondering last week, how many chapters in the book of John we can read? I'm wondering how many of us as parents and grandparents, how many days this week we can pray for our kids. And there are seven ways that you can pray for your kids. And I ask the worship team to come back up now as I'm going through this. But first of all, you can pray that they would love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've said it to my kids so many times. I have one goal for you, and that is that you love Jesus with everything that you have. Secondly, you can pray that they would be strong physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Thirdly, you can pray for them to make the right friends, and you can pray for them to choose good influences and influencers, and you can pray that God would bring those people into their lives as well. You can pray for their character development and their personal integrity. Number five, you can pray that the Holy Spirit would develop his fruit in them, and that they would experience things like love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and goodness and self-control. Number six, pray that they would have wisdom and courage to know and to do the right thing. 
And then number seven, pray for their future, that they would sense God's hand on their lives. God has a plan for every one of our kids, every one of our grandkids. I want my kids to believe that, my grandkids to believe that. So these cards are back there. You can pick these up. And you can pick maybe one prayer request per day, or you can pray for all seven per day. I don't know. But I'm wondering, and we'll check back on this, how many days this week can we, as a church, Pray for our kids and grandkids. That's the challenge this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us in such a crazy way that you'd come to earth and that you'd walk this earth and that you walk this earth healing people as an example to us of who you are because you're still that same Jesus. And though you feel removed from us, you're every bit present with us in our stories and in our hurts and in our needs. And I'm sure that every one of us sits here this morning and and we have concerns, Jesus, for our families. I pray that you would bring us comfort and encouragement. But then I pray, God, that you would, Jesus, that you would act in these situations too. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.